This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. If you've travelled through France, you probably went to Versailles. You could only wonder at the opulence of the King's Palace. But did you also wonder how the French court operated? Well, thanks to Kate Murdoch, we get an idea. Welcome back, Kate. Thanks, Jan. It's great to be here. Your descriptions of the palace and what the people were wearing and even the food that was served were really vivid. There was a lot of research you must have done. Yes, and it also comes about because of my, because I was an artist for so many years, so creating those visuals is really important to me. I like to read visuals and I like to write them. So, yeah, that's part of it also. But, yes, I had to get, you know, there are a number of things. Like at one stage I had a carriage clock on a mantle and carriage clocks weren't invented, you know, things oh. like that. And, you know, I was constantly reading, like I did a number of proofs just obviously for those types of things. And what about the marzipan cake? Yes, I, I came across that somewhere that, and I can't remember where, but there was something like that created at oh. one point for the court. <laughs> and, um, yes, it was as realistic as possible. Oh. Uh, this was all around 1750. 1705. 1705. So mm. it, the Louis were in presence, were Louis they? Louis XIV. Uh-huh. But the book is called The Orange Grove, and that's not in Versailles. Who owns the Orange Grove and the palace? The Duke and Duchess d'Amboise own it. And, uh, yes, it's, it's a beautiful chateau with it, its own orange grove and you know, extensive grounds and manicured gardens. Well, he's Duke Hugo. Let's make it easy. Yes. <laughs> and uh, the Duchess Charlotte. Now, they have a daughter, Amelia, but there's also a number of mistresses. Yes, there's five mistresses. And up to this, you know, the time that the book said, they've all been coexisting quite happily. There hasn't been you know, too many problems. But all of a sudden that changes with the arrival of the new mistress, Letitia. Well, what I couldn't believe is the, uh, the Duchess and the five mistresses all went out on a picnic. Yes. And they had a very cordial social time. They'd even discussed the merits of marriage over mistressing. That's right. Oh, you, with your research, could that conversation really go on? Well, yes, I believe so, because I think that the tension amongst these women would have reached a fever pitch at times, and that was the, the whole the whole idea of that was what got me writing this story in the first place. Is because very early on, I read a, a quote um, in an academic paper about a prince of the time who had twelve mistresses. And they all followed behind in these carriages and they all had the same, um, you know, equipage was the word that's used and the same livery and everything was the same. And this immediately intrigued me and I thought, well, how would they get along? Mm. Would they be friends? Would any of them be friends? And most importantly, how would the wife handle this situation and this setup? So, you know, the the scene that you refer to, um, usually... The mistresses know what to say and what not to say, and they keep their counsel, and they, you know, they don't ruffle her fe- the duchess's feathers. But in that particular scene, Henriette decides to stand up to her a little bit, to the shock of all the other women. So, what? what why didn't Why didn't the duchess and the other mistresses like the the newest, the fifth mistress? Well, she's very young and beautiful, for one, and she's also someone who the Duke has actually fallen in love with. Mm. So that hasn't happened before. 
No, well, they call her the child concubine. (laughs) (laughs) And, well, of course, if the king has fallen in love with her, Mm -hmm. he's not having any relationships with any of the other mistresses. Well, maybe, but, you know, there's Celine who desperately needs his, um, not so much his affection, but his largesse, shall we say. Yes. What's her problem? Well, she's desperate for love wherever she can find it. She's she's a very insecure person. She's definitely being threatened. Yes, and her husband um, leads, you know, a life that costs a lot of money. He's a gambler and um, she has to continue to fund him and you know her his life is dependent on her success within that setting so yeah it's it's and you've mentioned henrietta uh, um, henriette and uh well she has actually had a daughter by the king yes solange solange so uh there's another child around too this is uh, isabella another mistress's son Thomas mm. and uh, well, when the the, the fifth uh, mistress, Letitia, becomes pregnant, everybody well, all the everybody else worries if it's a son. Yes, oh. and that was the other thing that I should have mentioned. That's the other reason that she's a threat because up to that point, the Duchess hasn't been able to provide an heir, and so she realizes that this young girl could really usurp her position by by doing that. So when she yes, when she becomes pregnant, the, the stakes are raised even higher, which leads to some a lot of people having a grudge against uh, Letitia mm. and wanting to do her harm. That's right. Oh. The two children, Thomas and Solange, have the run of the palace. The orange grove is secret. They like to go there to hide and seek. They also like to play hide and seek in the palace and to learn a lot of the palace secrets. Yes. They learn about lye. What's lye? Lye is a substance that was used for cleaning and I decided to um, have it be used uh, to harm someone in in the story. I don't know if I want to... Oh, we're not telling whom or whatever. But but, uh, it is placed in undergarments. Yeah. And causes quite a bit of damage. So, yeah, it... Um, Welts and rashes and heats and faints. Oh, yes. Well, that's not the only damage. And here I'm passing... Uh, I'm going to get um, Kate Murdoch to read from page 179 because this is all about a black mass. Let's see. Crucifixes must be inscribed on the soles of the feet. The celebrant should be cloaked in black and naked beneath. The ideal animal for sacrifice is a goat or a pig. The vessel should be placed on the naked body of a woman. In place of consecrated bread, we must use a decomposed turnip, and the blood of the slaughtered animal replaces the consecrated wine. Madame Fulbray gave a wicked smile, her eyes glinting. I will kill the pig having had experience at the task. Where is the best place for the mass to be performed? Charlotte pondered the question, gazing out of the pavilion windows towards the orange grove, its symmetrical rows of trees stretching into the distance. The tree canopies were thick and their leaves glossy, casting dappled shadows along the gravelled pathways. The orange grove, Charlotte Charlotte replied, No one will see us amid all that 
foliage. So the reason for this, you know, who is she doing? Who is she actually getting the black mass said for? You'll all have to read to find out. Now, this isn't the only mythical, magical type thing in it. There's tarot card readings. Yes. So there's a, a character called Romain de Villiers who comes to the chateau and his purpose is to entertain the women with his, his readings. And there's several uh, reading tarot reading scenes throughout the novel. So I started to try and write them and it, it just was not feeling right. And I thought, I'm really going to have to learn to read them because otherwise people are going to read it and they'll be able to tell that I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so I did just that. I bought a, a pack of the cards. And when I started looking at them and looking at some of the descriptions of, of it all, I was very sceptical. This is a load of rubbish. <laughs> and then as I kind of did it more and more, I ended up kind of liking them. And now I have my pack so it's, it, it really is interesting <laughs> because, you know, you do the readings and we, we hear about King of Swords and Seven of Swords and, you know, sort of all yeah. of these other uh, ones. And, of course, you know, with the insight um, of an author, you can go back and write whatever you like. But as we're mm. reading it, we're building our story. And I had to laugh about this because, you know, there was – was there really professional tarot readers in the courts at the time? I didn't read of that specifically no but I thought it was quite plausible to have somebody like that yeah I mean there are all kinds of entertainments that they had at the time um the opera ballet was that is featured in the novel was certainly something oh, that, that they sounded, loved yeah that sounded as if, if it was written with an artist's eye looking at it um I, look I laughed about this the professional tarot card reader you know I think the best uh, fortune telling was done by his prostitute friend Giselle <laughs> who said you are a bad man with noble intentions you will be good you just don't know it yet <laughs> look there are forged love letters jewels secret visits to a convent and a priest who is told to douse his hot blood with frigid air prayer and whip but back to Versailles with all the courtiers planning and plotting and scheming it's the Estelle, the Duke and Duchess's 12-year-old daughter, who's introduced to a Marquise in the hope he would remember her in years to come. But it wasn't her. It was the word games that uh, he played with Letitia that captivated him. Yes, well, she ended up playing it with Madame Fulbray and he was watching and he is known as being very good at the word games at court. And... Yeah, and I think just their conversation, they, they start to be quite interested in one another, but it's very forbidden. Oh, there's a lot of forbidden stuff in this. Look, Kate Murdoch, you've given us 1705 France, Orange Grove. The previous book was Stone Circle, 16th century, and next one's 1920s Sicily. That's right. Oh, <laughs> just keep bringing around a bit. <laughs> but the book I've been speaking with Kate today about is The Orange Grove, published by Regal House Publishing. Thank you, Kate. Thank well, from, you so much, Jan. From French history to Australian history, and I've got a Keneally I've interviewed, but not the one you no normally associate with writing. Here we go with the pre-record. Fact and fiction are often interchangeable when it comes to novels. In particular, there are countless Australian stories of personal triumphs and tribulations. Meg Keneally fictionalises one such epic case in her novel, Fled. So, Meg, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. Now, 
you've actually based this tale on the true life story of mm. Mary Bryant, who was one of the convicts on the First Fleet, your character, Jenny Trelawney. So yes. the fictionalisation, the yes. reasons for that? Well, the main reason was that Mary was illiterate, so she didn't leave any journals or letters or any of those wonderful resources that um, historians and historical novelists often look to to illuminate the past. So I don't really know what she thought, what she felt, what she believed, any of that. But we really know more about her by the hole she leaves in history than by anything else. So it didn't feel right to ascribe thoughts and feelings and beliefs to a woman who actually lived when I didn't know whether they were hers. So I decided I would feel more comfortable doing all this with a fictional character. The other reason was I did change a few minor facts in the story, things like the number of convicts in the boat. Uh, There were actually 11 people in the boat. I've only got six. And her father dying, her father didn't really die as as far as we know. Minor stuff like that. But actually the amazing thing about this story is that the most outlandish, unbelievable aspects of it actually occurred. And they're true. Mm. And this is where I had one of the difficulties of whether we give those away or whether we should read this as a novel or as history because the Mm. events actually did occur. But what struck me initially was the very primitiveness of Mm. uh, Jenny's early life. She's described as a forest dweller. She falls into being a highwayman, so to speak. Quite literally, she falls into it. And her being a forest dweller, she was actually, Mary Bryant was actually named as a forest dweller in court time. Documents. She lived in, uh, Mary Bryant was from Foy, which I've fictionalised as Penmore in the book, um, but all of the other place names in Cornwall and Devon in the book actually existed. And she was arrested near Plymouth. It was obviously a bit too far to walk, four-day walk or so between Plymouth and uh, and Foy. And she was arrested with two other girls who she operated with. And what they stole, mm. you know, it was a six-penny worth of bonnet and things yes, like that. About, yeah. about 12 shillings, I think, was yeah. the total value For of which, of course, you are sent across the seas to Australia. If you're lucky, otherwise you get your neck stretched. (laughs) Yes. Now, she's actually pregnant Mm. and gives birth on the voyage voyage over, which was Mm. the fate of a lot of the girls. And, I mean, sex was used as a a form of survival. But here's the interesting thing. She gives birth to a baby called Charlotte, Mm. and the baby becomes a form of currency. Well, yeah, the baby has a lot of roles early on, actually. Um, she does become a sort of talisman that Jenny can hold up in front of her to say, I need protection because I have this baby. But also but, then, there are others that want to hold yes, the baby. Yes, absolutely. There are people who come up to her, one person in particular who she ends up marrying, comes up to her and says, I just want to see something uncorrupted. I just want to see something pure. It's been years since I've seen anything as nature intended. One of the key concerns that I've interpreted Jenny as having is that the men on the Charlotte would have been making suggestions to the women about what they were going to do to them once they got to Sydney. And I imagine that Mary Bryant would have been in fear for what would happen to her baby under those circumstances. Well, then we get to the arrival Mm. in Australia and it was noted for its debauchery, something that is often overlooked when people teach history Mm. in school because there was just this explosion of Mm. testosterone and hormones and all sorts of things because they'd been at sea separated for over a year. So quite a traumatic landing. But this is the interesting thing that you come up with. Jenny has virtually negotiated a marriage contract. Let's enter into a a matrimonial Mm. agreement. Yes. But 
for both Dan, who's a fellow convict, and mm. the administration. We have, sir, she said to the governor. He turned around but did not approach, so she clutched Charlotte a little more tightly and scurried up to him as fast as she could, dropping in what she hoped was the idea of a curtsy. You'll address the governor as your excellency, said the shorter man next to him. Insubordination is one of the crimes we intend to deal with harshly here. Major Rowe, said the governor, in what sounded like a warning. I'm sorry, Your Excellency, she said, bobbing again, but carefully, so as not to overbalance and send Charlotte plummeting to the ground. I had heard, Your Excellency, that convicts who marry might be given positions of trust. Oh, you've heard. Where might you have heard this? I'm not sure now, Your Excellency, but rumours, they spread quickly among us. They have grown wings, clearly, if they are able to reach you in the hold of the... um, Major Rowe said... The Charlotte, Your Excellency, she said to him. So mm. this whole idea yeah. of almost effrontery to approach yeah. the governor. Absolutely. The administration's desire to have the moral code yes. maintained. Yes. Yes. Jenny's uh, need to find protection. Mm. She's also then got to negotiate with Dan, yeah. who doesn't want necessarily to be attached, but there's yeah. a, an advantage for him. Mm. So there's all of these considerations. Yes, it's, absolutely. It, it, it's a marvellous sort of yeah. rethinking of that moment. Well, you know, what has always fascinated me about Mary is how many obstacles she needed to negotiate in order to get protection, in order to stay fed, in order to stay alive, and the resourcefulness she used to negotiate these obstacles and to arrive at an outcome that was in her favour. But also the resourcefulness resourcefulness of mm. someone who was so poorly educated and yes, illiterate. Absolutely. She was uh, she had a natural intelligence. What has always interested me about this aspect of Australian history too is that you have a diverse group of people mashed together and put in claustrophobic cir- circumstances amid the vastness and what that does to people. The whole social experiment of it, it's almost Lord of the Flies like. The first fleet basically mm. nearly perished. Absolutely. The, those the that comp, came, yeah, yeah. They were very lucky to survive. Mm. You also have another element that you bring in mm. then is the negotiation with the Indigenous people. I really struggled with writing the Indigenous aspects of this tale because I don't believe, as someone with no Indigenous heritage, I don't believe that I have a right to tell the story of um, colonisation and invasion from a uh, an Indigenous perspective. So the choice was then either not to write the book at all or to not have the Indigenous aspect there. Both were completely anathema to me because to not have the Indigenous aspect there would be to perpetuate the myth of Terra Nullius. I think it's also important for authors to imagine Mm. part of the crossing the divide is to actually put your self in somebody else's shoes. Yes, yeah. And also, I mean, the entire book is from the point of view of Jenny, so from the point of view of a convict. And I do feel that I have the right to write from a convict perspective, and it looks at her interactions from her point of view. And we do know that uh, Mary and Will Bryant were friends with Benelong, so they knew Benelong. They very possibly knew Arabanu. They very possibly knew Colby. So to not reflect that was, to me, not an option. It was significant, Mm. but just how and in what form we can only imagine, just like we we can can. only imagine Mm. the nature of the lives in some ways. That's right. That's yeah. right. But I have read histories which suggest that Will Bryant took members of Benelong's family out fishing oh. in the Governor's Cutter, the boat in which they eventually made the escape. Uh, I haven't been able to confirm 
confirm that anywhere, but that has been suggested. Uh, And presumably he also picked, Will Bryant also picked the brains of the Eora on uh, how to fish, where the best currents were. Well, we're picking up then on that Mm. element where they do actually steal the cutter, the governor's Mm. cutter. They have been fishing. They have been actually providing the settlement with food, which was Mm. one of the only stable supplies. They steal the cutter. Mm. They actually make their way to Timor, which is ruled by the Dutch. Yes. And the trials and tribulations of getting there, an extraordinary feat. Quite incredible. I mean, to me, it's a feat of survival up there with Shackleton. Yes. 69 days, 5,000 kilometres, the last 1,200 or so kilometres over uncharted ocean, and everyone in that boat survived. But now we get to a point where we cross over in many ways. I'm, I've got my reader's cap on where mm. I'm looking at this as a novel. Yes. And I don't want to give anything away because the story doesn't end there. Yeah. And it sort of takes on extraordinary perspective of what happens then. Mm. How much can you actually tell us and uh, inform the reader without giving away the ending, even though they can look at Mary Bryant's history if they yes, want. Yes, yeah, and the broad brushstrokes of Mary Bryant's history are definitely reflected in the book. Um, and there is an aspect in the book, which I won't uh, sort of reveal, but it, people who know the history will know, where I've been asked several times whether I was tempted to change a particular outcome. outcome. Yeah. And I really felt that while I have tweaked the facts a little bit for the sake of narrative convenience, I felt changing those really sort of landmark events would be dishonest. Well, it gets to the notion of truth being stranger than fiction. Yes, indeed. And also the price Mm. being paid for freedom. Yes. And that brings up one of the central issues, the cost of Mm. freedom. Yeah. And in many ways, had they stayed, they might have been Mm. able to serve their sentence and gone home, but they chose to seek freedom and independence. Yeah, and... You know, one of the things that sort of dragged me through the book was the thought of why would she put her children at this peril? Because at the time of their escape, her children were around three and one. I don't know for sure whether she tied them to a bench in the boat. I have her doing that because it's hard to see how they could have survived otherwise, particularly as they came across a three-week storm which blew them to the Great Barrier Reef and they were the first Europeans to set foot on Lady Elliot Island where they'd found a colony of turtles and ate dried turtle meat and used rendered turtle fat to seal the cracks in the boat. You know, if I made that up, people would tell me I was being implausible. But the ingenuity uh, then. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, it was really seat-of-the-pants survival. It never ceases to amaze me that they all made it to Copang alive. You've also got Mm. the role Mm. of women. Yes, I've written Jenny as a leader, and I believe Mary Bryant was a leader. And I also believe and have portrayed in the book that there would have been some resistance to her leadership because I have written her as a woman who refuses to hide her light. She's not somebody who's going to save someone's feelings by pretending that she is less intelligent or less resourceful than she is. And uh, this rubs certain people in the book well and truly up the wrong way. And the consequences of that, again, which I won't give away any spoilers for, but the consequences of that are ultimately cataclysmic. What gets me is the fact that we've often sanitised so much of Australian history. And it's only in recent years that there's been more awareness, openness, Mm. a a willingness to reimagine what 
would have actually occurred. Yes, although, you know, I can understand in some ways why writers have been hesitant to do so. And I was hesitant in a way because I know that it's painful history for the first Australians. And it's history that's not quaint, sort of dusty, sepia-toned history. It's reverberating to this day. They are still living with the consequences of the 26th of January, 1788. So that makes it difficult and it makes it makes people hesitant. Um, and I really hope that I've treated that aspect of the tale respectfully. But there is in our history such incredible stories. And I think the fact that it's difficult and the fact that it's challenging is not a reason not to tell the stories. And there is a remarkable level of cruelty. Absolutely. Not just against the Indigenous, but Mm. against the convicts. They were not considered to be people. No, no. Um, and, And so there was that in that European mindset at the time. Absolutely. And there were many who believed that convicts had a criminal gene. You were born with it. You couldn't help it. There was no hope of rehabilitation for you because you were from bad stock and you were bound to commit crimes no matter what. And, you know, I come from that bad stock myself. I've got... uh, um, I have some ancestors who came here on what we'll call a government-sponsored cruise. But we now willingly acknowledge Mm. that. Yeah, absolutely. But my mother didn't know about my great-great-grandmother and great-great-grandfather when she was a child because it was shameful to have yeah. convicts. But background. now it's a, it's a badge of pride. Absolutely. It's, People it, were ripping the pages out of the history book and then in about 1988 so they so, started pasting them back in. <laughs> society's attitude has changed. Absolutely. Well, look, Meg, thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you, David. The book is called Fled and it's a marvellous story based on the fact of Mary Bryant Mm. making her way to freedom after being sent out here on the First Fleet, and it's from Echo Publishing. So, Meg, thank you. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. That was my interview with Meg Keneally. And I spoke with Kate Murdoch about her book, The Orange Grove. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.